1: specifically they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too so let's get right to it the new moneymaker scratch off from the ohio lottery doesn't beat around the bush money maker play the game and you could win money up to two million dollars with more than 88 million in prizes ranging from 50 to 500 moneymaker cuts right to the cash lottery players are subject to ohio laws and commission regulations play responsibly
0: there's a new class of blockbuster drugs
1: The following episode contains descriptions of violence, starvation, and animal cruelty that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13.
0: The heat was unbearable. James Reed kicked his horse's flanks, urging it onward. The gray mare, Glaucus, had become his most reliable companion on this long trek. He hated pushing the animal so hard.
1: But right now, speed was paramount. James had been separated from the train for 20 hours after volunteering to ride ahead and find water for his family.
0: He had found the water, but that bought him little peace of mind. This desert was harsh and unforgiving. His family was counting on him to guide them through
1: it. His heart soared when he saw the familiar wagon train on the horizon. He had made it. His family would not die of thirst tonight. But when James reached his family's wagons,
0: his heart sank again.
1: All but one of the oxen were gone, as well as the teamsters he had hired to watch over them.
0: His wife, Margaret, told him not to worry. The Teamsters had simply been driving the oxen ahead to water them and would be back soon. James must have passed them on his way back.
1: They waited all day long for the Teamsters and their animals to return. They never did. After 24 hours of waiting, James picked up his youngest child and they started walking through the burning desert.
0: As they trudged ahead, following the tracks of the wagons ahead of them, James cursed under his breath. He should have never left his family unattended. With most of their livestock gone, James didn't know if they'd survive the rest of their journey west. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco.
1: And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible, true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar.
0: This is our first episode on The Donner Party, a caravan of American settlers bound for California in the fall of 1846.
1: This wagon train consisted of around 90 hopeful settlers, including men, women, pets, livestock, and infants. Their perilous route took them 2,500 miles across North America through two deserts and into a gap in the Sierra Nevada, now known as Donner Pass. The trip should have taken four months. In the end, it dragged on for a year exacerbated by bad weather and rapidly dwindling food stores.
0: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
1: And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
0: For Americans, the 1840s was the age of manifest destiny. This philosophy, that white settlers had a right to settle and tame the wild land of America, swept its way across the still young United States. Though settlers had already spread from Philadelphia and New York, all the way to Iowa and Missouri, the land west of the Rocky Mountains was still wild and relatively untamed, an enticing prospect for European Americans who craved a lush new land to thrive in.
1: This new interest was spurred in no small part by a book published in 1845, The Emigrant's Guide to California and Oregon. The author of this book was an explorer named Lansford Hastings, who spent much of the early 1840s living in the Mexican province of California. He was an ambitious man who wanted to see California become its own republic. Some believe that Hastings' book was his way of effecting a bloodless revolution by encouraging white settlers to move into the Mexican territory.
0: Word of this fresh opportunity reached Springfield, Illinois, where a man named George Donner lived with his family.
1: George Donner was 62 years old and in excellent health for his age. Originally from Salem, North Carolina, he was a man who rarely stayed in one place for long. His daughter later described him as imbued with the spirit of adventure. Throughout his life, he slowly moved westward, living briefly in Kentucky and Indiana. After losing his first two wives to disease, he married his third wife, Tamson, and they settled in Illinois.
0: He was a popular figure in Springfield, known to neighbors as Uncle George. But in 1845, he was feeling the urge to move once again. Descriptions of the land out west intrigued him and his younger brother, Jacob. They grew particularly interested in California's pleasant climate and fertile soil, a subject many explorers raved about.
1: George and Jacob spent the winter of 1845 diligently studying the maps and writings of Lansford Hastings. Finally, after considerable discussion and consideration, they decided they would leave for California on April 15, 1846.
0: This departure date made the most sense, as it gave the families the largest window of favorable weather to cross the thousands of miles between Illinois and the Western Territories.
1: In the weeks before their departure, George Donner took pains to ensure they were prepared for any obstacle they might come across. They purchased livestock to keep them fed while on the road, seeds to cultivate in their new home, knickknacks and jewelry to barter with any Native American tribes they might encounter, and fine silks and fabrics to trade for Mexican land rights when they finally reached California.
0: As they set out, George Donner met another man with his sights set on California, the 45-year-old James F. Reed. Reed, an Irishman who had settled in Illinois in 1831, had also been taken by Hastings' vivid descriptions of California. The two families joined up together and became known as the Donner-Reed Party.
1: Between the two families, they possessed nine covered wagons. Six for the Donners and three for the Reeds. They passed through Independence, Missouri on May 12, 1846, joining up with a wagon train on the most popular emigrant route west, the Oregon Trail.
0: Here, the Donner-Reed party was joined by the family of Patrick Breen, an Iowan Catholic, and Levina Murphy, a widow who headed a family of 13.
1: Despite his hefty preparations, George Donner had a number of worries. Chief among them was his brother, Jacob.
0: Jacob Donner was about eight years younger than George, but far less physically fit and prone to fatigue and illness. George prayed that they would have enough supplies and favorable weather to make it to California without his brother contracting some sickness or becoming injured.
1: The male heads of the families, George Donner, James Reed, and Patrick Breen, were all in agreement about making it to California as fast as possible to beat the weather and save supplies. According to Lansford Hastings' writing, this was an achievable goal. A passage in Hastings' book proposed an alternate route to California that he claimed would save travelers plenty of time and mileage. He wrote... The most direct route for the California emigrants would be to leave the Oregon route, about 200 miles east from Fort Hall, thence bearing west-southwest to the Salt Lake and thence continuing down to the Bay of St. Francisco by the route just described.
0: But what Hastings neglected to mention in his book was that he had never taken the route himself at the time of writing. The efficiency of Hastings' cutoff was pure conjecture drawn by a man who was only going off of maps and descriptions he had heard from other individuals.
1: On June 27th, the Donna Reed party arrived at Fort Laramie, a popular trading post in eastern Wyoming. The very same day, James Clyman, a companion of Lansford Hastings, arrived at the fort as well.
0: Clyman and James Reed were old friends from the 1832 Black Hawk War, having served together in the same company.
1: Reed sat down with Clyman and asked him about the shortcut to California proposed in Hastings' book.
0: Clyman's face fell when he heard the optimism in Reed's voice. He told Reed, in no uncertain terms, to take the more established route to California. He said, Take the regular wagon track and never leave it. It is barely possible to get through if you follow it, and it may be impossible if you
1: don't. Reed protested, saying the regular wagon trail was too far out of the way and would cost them days, if not weeks, of extra travel. Clyman insisted. In the tail end of 1845, he and Hastings had crossed back from California through the Hastings Cut-Off, It took them over the Sierras, through the winding canyons and thick brush of the Wasatch Mountains and across the Great Salt Desert. He told Reed that the route Hastings described was inhospitable at best and deadly at worst.
0: Reed parted company with Kleiman that night, undeterred. Whatever warnings Kleiman gave him about Hastings' new route, they were outweighed by Reed's own desire for a more direct path to California.
1: As the party continued west, they were accompanied by a number of settlers bound for Oregon. On July 11th, they encountered a man coming the opposite direction. He introduced himself as Wales B. Bonney. He had with him a letter that he was supposed to deliver to any settlers traveling west.
0: It was an open letter penned by Lansford Hastings, to all California emigrants now on the road. Unlike Kleiman, he extolled the benefits of his new cutoff, which he had just explored. He advised everyone who read the letter to head straight to Fort Bridger, where he would be waiting to escort
1: settlers west along his route. Reed was delighted by the news. He and the other families had been growing worried about the lateness of the season, It was already halfway through the summer, and they still had half their journey to go. With this encouragement, the Donner-Reed Group parted company with the rest of the wagon train on July 18th and headed for Fort Bridger.
0: Now an autonomous company of their own, the Donner-Reed Party voted on who would be the captain of their group. The choice was between the heads of the three families, George Donner, James Reed, and Patrick Breen.
1: James Reed's stern military demeanor had made him automatically unpopular among the group. George and the older men respected his experience and fortitude, but amongst the younger men and women in the group, Reed came off as overbearing and unnecessarily cruel.
0: Patrick Breen, on the other hand, was too much of a Catholic for many of the Protestants in the group.
1: So, the group elected George Donner, who had neither the temperament of Reed, or the piety of Green. It would be the easiest decision the party made throughout their entire trip.
0: But not everyone was thrilled with the new plans. One of the other settlers wrote in his journal as they left the Donners, The Californians were much elated and in fine spirits, with the prospect of better and nearer road to the country of their destination. Mrs. George Donner, however, was an exception.
1: Tamson Donner, George's 44-year-old wife, was disillusioned with the leadership of their party, including her husband. She thought they were foolish to put their fate in the hands of a man who probably was, in her words, some selfish adventurer.
0: But George Donner didn't heed his wife's concerns. Her misgivings only got worse when the newly christened Donner Party arrived at Fort Bridger on July 28th. When they asked around for Lansford Hastings, they found out he had left several days earlier. But the owners of the fort, mountain men Jim Bridger and Luis Vasquez, offered them supplies and information regarding the route Hastings took.
1: Reed recorded Bridger's advice in a letter home, saying, Hastings Cut-Off is said to be saving of 350 or 400 miles going to California. The rest of the Californians went the long route, feeling afraid of Hastings Cut-Off. Mr. Bridger informs me that the route we designed to take is a fine level road with plenty of water and grass. But
0: Bridger was not telling Reed the whole truth.
1: Some days before, A friend of Reed's named Edwin Bryant visited Fort Bridger and left a letter for Reed. He had just come through Hastings' cutoff and wrote urgently to dissuade Reed from taking that route. It was terribly impractical for wagons, he wrote, and was actually a more inefficient route than the longer one.
0: Jim Bridger did not give this letter to Reed or even mention that Bryant had come through. He could not risk the party turning back. His business depended on it.
1: Bridger and Vasquez had been running Fort Bridger since 1843. By 1846, the established route to California circumvented this trading post altogether, meaning their supply of customers had sharply declined over the preceding three years.
0: But if Hastings' cutoff became a popular route for settlers going to California, Bridger and Vasquez would be able to revive their failing business.
1: Neither George Donner nor any of his companions suspected Bridger had any hidden agenda, though many of them remarked in letters home that Fort Bridger wasn't much of a fort at all, more a pitiful collection of cabins surrounded by meager fortifications.
0: After trading for supplies and fresh livestock, the Donner party set out once again on July 31st, hoping to catch up with Hastings on his route to California.
1: A week later, on August 6th, they encountered the first evidence of Hastings at the eastern end of Weber Canyon, a narrow pass into the Wasatch Mountains. Hastings had left a note there tied to some sagebrush.
0: Its contents were not encouraging. In the letter, Hastings advised they not attempt to bring their wagons into this pass. Instead, he suggested they send a messenger through to meet him and he would come back and guide them along a better route.
1: George Donner called for a volunteer to go through and meet Hastings. James Reed volunteered, along with two other men, Charles Stanton and William Pike. The three men saddled up and went into the pass, while the rest of the Donner party set up camp and waited.
0: Reed, Stanton, and Pike soon discovered why Hastings had warned against taking this route. The pass was narrow and littered with jutting rocks, crags and debris. Even without wagons, they found it difficult to navigate the canyon.
1: On August 8th, they emerged on the other side of the Wasatch Mountains, ragged and exhausted.
0: Waiting for them on the banks of the Great Salt Lake was Lansford Hastings himself and the party of 60 wagons he had escorted through the pass. Reed, Stanton and Pike were relieved At last, they could finally speak to the man who had led them so astray.
1: Unfortunately for them, Hastings had no intention of doubling back to help any stragglers.
0: When we return, the Donner party falls behind schedule and starts facing the fatal consequences of Hastings' shortcut. Now, back to the story.
1: By the time they reached the Wasatch Mountains in August of 1846, the Donner Party numbered 87 members in 23 wagons. It had grown considerably from the 32-man party that had left Springfield that spring.
0: They were joined by several smaller families, such as William Eddy, a cabinetmaker from Illinois with his wife and two children. Some of these families included immigrants, such as Lewis Kiesberg, a foul-tempered German with his family, an old Belgian man named Hardkoop who traveled with Kiesberg, and another German known only by the surname Wolfinger.
1: Several single men bolstered the group, including the 35-year-old Charles Stanton and an Irishman named Patrick Dolan.
0: One final family caught up with them as they waited for James Reed to return from the far side of the Wasatch Mountains on August 8th. This was the Graves family, who had been trailing behind them since they left Independence, Missouri. One of their hired men, John Snyder, did his best to encourage the flagging spirits of the Donner Party.
1: On August 10, 1846, James Reed returned to the party alone. He had left Charles Stanton and William Pike resting on the other side of the mountains. He passed on a message from Lansford Hastings, the explorer whose book had guided them to what looked like a dead end.
0: Reed, Stanton, and Pike had demanded that Hastings show them a better route through the mountains than the horrible one they had just taken.
1: Hastings indicated a nearby pass through the mountains, but would not be joining them. He was preoccupied with his own wagon train and would not wait for the Donners to catch up with him.
0: When he finally returned to the Donners, Reed claimed that following Hastings' guidance, he had found another route that would circumvent the narrow canyon. He called this route Reed's Pass. It had some dense underbrush to get through, but it was nowhere near as hazardous as the narrow passageway Hastings' book had led them to.
1: Encouraged, the party turned southwest to follow this new path. At first, it was promising, only sloping gently upward toward the pass in the mountains. However, by August 15th, they could go no further. The brush had grown too thick for the wagons to pass, and it needed to be cleared before they could continue.
0: It took three whole days for the able-bodied men of the group to cut a path through the thick undergrowth. All the while, Reed grew steadily more irritable, and started berating the men for not working as hard as they could.
1: By the time they reached the crest on August 21st, many members of the party started to doubt Reed's judgment as a guide. It had taken 16 days to cross the Wasatch Mountains. The route that had seemed so promising had cost them their most precious resource, time.
0: The group hastily descended into the Salt Lake Valley, following tracks left by Hastings' company The wagon train began to spread out, each family traveling at their own pace. The Donner wagon lagged behind due to a sickly passenger, a young man named Luke Halloran, who they had picked up at Fort Bridger. Halloran thought that the California climate would help cure his tuberculosis. But as August wore on, his strength waned until he passed away on August 25th.
1: Many historians consider Luke Halloran the first true casualty of the Donner party. The Donner stopped just long enough to bury him, then set off after their companions.
0: The craggy mountain range and thick underbrush of the Wasatch Mountains was only the first obstacle. The second was the salt desert following the Great Salt Lake.
1: Crossing this arid Utah desert took its toll on the Donner Party. They fought searing hot sun during the day and bitterly cold winds at night. The wagons drifted further and further apart and dehydration began to set in.
0: One of the first to feel the effects of dehydration was William Eddy toward the front of the train. As he walked, he saw another group of settlers in the distance perfectly mirroring his own family's progress. In moments, the caravan had vanished into the hazy distance, nothing but a mirage.
1: Fearing either his cattle or his family would die of thirst, James Reed rode ahead of his wagons to fetch water, leaving his family and his oxen in the care of his teamsters. The hired men unhitched the oxen from the wagons to prevent them from passing out from thirst and exhaustion.
0: By this point, many of the oxen were half-blind from sand blowing into their eyes. Once they were freed from the yokes that held them back, the beasts flew into a frenzy and charged off into the dark. No one really knows precisely why they did this, but it's suspected that the scent of a nearby oasis drove the parched animals to charge away in search of water. Reed returned to find his family, left with only one cow and one ox.
1: With most of his herd gone, the Reed family had lost a significant source of food, as well as the means to pull their three wagons.
0: They loaded everything they could fit onto their one remaining wagon, prioritizing what food they had left.
1: After seven days of trudging through the desert, the Donner Party gathered by a spring at the base of Pilot Peak. They camped there for around a week, taking in supplies and searching for livestock that had wandered off. Reed was not the only one who wound up abandoning wagons for supply reasons. Both George Donner and Lewis Kiesberg abandoned one wagon each during this leg of the journey.
0: The long march through the desert had been disastrous for the party's supply levels as well. Most families had lost significant numbers of livestock and were suffering from malnutrition, With food stores running low, the group decided to send someone ahead to bring them supplies from Sutter's fort, the nearest Californian trading post.
1: Two men volunteered, Charles Stanton and William Big Bill McCutcheon. Reed gave McCutcheon a letter to deliver to Sutter, promising that Reed would repay him for any provisions that the two men took back with him. Stanton and McCutcheon set off, and a few days later, on September 10th, The Donner Party broke camp and soldiered on.
0: The tracks left by Hastings' group were still visible in the sand and dirt ahead of them, giving them a clear route to follow.
1: But once again, taking Hastings' advice turned out to be a bad idea. The tracks led the settlers along the Ruby Mountains, which turned out to be a 125-mile detour, though they wouldn't realize this until later.
0: Finally... On September 26, they reached the Humboldt River, where Hastings' cutoff met the established emigrant trail. The detour had been disastrous. By taking Hastings' cutoff, the Donner party was now weeks behind schedule, and many families, including Reed's, were perilously low on supplies. The Donner family took the lead, and the rest of the train followed hoping that with diligent rationing, they could still make it to California.
1: The end of September passed uneventfully, with the party making steady progress along the trail. But at the dawn of October, tensions reached a breaking point between the various families.
0: On the morning of October 5th, Reed and William Eddy left the wagon train to hunt, They hoped to bolster their depleted food stores until Stanton and McCutcheon's returned from the trading post. That evening, as the two men returned to the wagon train, Reed heard some voices raised in argument.
1: Just underneath the voices came the unmistakable sound of screaming oxen.
0: Reed picked up his pace, riding up to his wagon to see what was causing the racket. What he found was a scene of utter chaos."
1: The team of oxen belonging to the Graves family had become tangled with Reed's remaining ox and his family wagon. Graves's driver, 23-year-old John Snyder, was furiously whipping the oxen in an attempt to separate the teams. He shouted at Milt Elliott, claiming that Elliott had been in his way and it was his fault that the animals had gotten entangled.
0: Reed dismounted his horse and berated Snyder for mistreating the animals. He drew his hunting knife to cut the wagons free.
1: Then, turning his frustration from Elliot to Elliot's employer, Snyder threatened to whip Reed if he came any closer.
0: In an attempt to defuse the situation, Reed told Snyder they should settle the matter
1: later. Snyder replied, We will settle it now and struck Reed in the head with the butt of his bullwhip.
0: This blow knocked Reed to the ground. Snyder leapt on him, furiously striking him several more times.
1: Margaret Reed attempted to break up the fight but received a blow to her head as well. When Snyder went to strike again, Reed stood and plunged his knife into Snyder's chest, puncturing his left lung.
0: Snyder stumbled into the arms of his employer, Billy Graves, who caught him and lowered him to the ground. Moments later, John Snyder was dead.
1: Reed was immediately filled with remorse. He reportedly threw his bloody hunting knife aside in despair. He offered boards from his own wagon for a coffin, but this was rejected by the Graves family.
0: With their captain, George Donner, two days ahead, the company formed a council to decide what should be done with James Reed, who is now considered a murderer.
1: John Snyder, though only a hired hand, had been popular among the company. Reed, on the other hand, was the caustic and haughty man who had insisted they take a difficult route.
0: Most of the party had not seen the events that led to John Snyder's death, and doubted Reed's claim of self-defense. Some men wrote down affidavits from all the witnesses, which they stored for an eventual trial in California.
1: Others wanted to dispense frontier justice that very day. Louis Kiesberg raised his wagon tongue in the air and said that Reed should be hanged from it immediately. The two sides, friends of Reed and of Snyder, debated the issue back and forth the entire evening.
0: Finally, they settled on a sentence that appeased the majority. Reed would be banished from the party without food or weaponry. In the desert, this was tantamount to a death sentence, but one that didn't force his family to watch him die.
1: On the morning of October 6th, the day after Snyder's body was buried, Reed bade farewell to his family and rode off into the wilderness on his prize mare, Glaucus.
0: That night, in direct defiance of the group, Reed's daughter-in-law Virginia and Milt Elliott rode out after him.
1: When they caught up with Reed, they gave him his rifle, pistols, ammunition, and a handful of crackers. They
0: then returned to their families.
1: On his way west, Reed passed the Donner family wagons, where he claimed to have been sent ahead to seek additional supplies in California. George Donner may have been skeptical that Reed would so willingly abandon his family, but he didn't question him. One of the Donner's teamsters, Walter Heron, volunteered to go with Reed for supplies.
0: The two men then set off ahead on Reed's horse, Many in the Donner party would never see them again.
1: Soon afterward, a German member of the party, a Mr. Wolfinger, lost all of his own livestock and had to abandon his wagon. His wife, Doris, went ahead with the rest of the party, while two men, Joseph Reinhardt and Augustus Spitzer, stayed behind to help Wolfinger salvage what goods he could carry.
0: Reinhardt and Spitzer rejoined the party a few days later with solemn news for Mrs. Wolfinger. They claimed her husband had been killed by members of the Paiute tribe who had attacked and burned the wagon.
1: When news of this claim reached the Donner wagons, George Donner made a note of it. It was no secret Wolfinger carried a considerable sum of money on his person, so his sudden death was suspicious.
0: Rumors of murder began to circulate among the weary travelers
1: the party was starting to come apart at the seams. After months of marching together, many families openly resented their neighbors and started to keep mostly to themselves.
0: Along the wagon train, families were making efforts to lighten the load for their weary oxen. The Kiesberg family even kicked their traveling companion, the old Belgian named Hardcoop, out of their wagon.
1: Hardcoop begged other wagons to take him in, but his pleas fell on deaf ears. Most families didn't want to tax their remaining oxen with another passenger. Raids from nearby Paiute natives had driven off or wounded many of the livestock, and those that remained were a precious commodity.
0: Hardcoop fell behind and was never seen again.
1: On October 15th, a Paiute raid killed all but one of William Eddy's cattle, forcing Eddy, his wife, and child to abandon many of their possessions and continue on foot.
0: The next day, Eddy arrived at Patrick Breen's wagon, where he begged for some water to help his family cross the Alkali Desert. Breen, who had seven children of his own to think of, refused to share.
1: Eddie seized a rifle and pointed it at Breen, telling him that he would kill for the water if he had to. Breen let him fill a bucket and continue on his way. Despite the threat, Breen let the whole incident go. The man was desperate and he would have done the same for his own family.
0: The desert finally ended when the Donner party reached the Truckee River on October 17th. Eddie, relieved, set about hunting nearby geese for his family. All they had left to eat was flour, but their father was a skilled marksman, and soon he brought back nine geese for his children to eat.
1: On October 19th, Charles Stanton returned from Sutter's fort with supplies for the flagging party. Trailing behind him were seven mules laden with flour, dried beef, and other supplies but missing was his companion, Big Bill McCutcheon. He had fallen ill at Sutter's Fort and couldn't return. Instead, Stanton brought back two Miwok Native American cowboys named Luis and Salvador to help the struggling train.
0: Stanton had passed a haggard Reed and Heron going the opposite direction. Reed was so gaunt from starvation that Stanton had barely recognized him. The party members who had exiled him were astonished that Reed had made it so far.
1: The return of Stanton and the new supplies gave hope to the settlers. Maybe, just maybe, these supplies would carry them to California.
0: Their hopes were dashed only a day later. On October 20th, they caught their first glimpse of the Sierra Nevada, a sheer wall of granite rising up in the distance.
1: But it wasn't just the size of these mountains that caused distress among the group. The tips of the Sierra Nevada mountain range were frosted with snow. It was their first tangible sign that winter was on the horizon. When we
0: return, the Donner Party seals their own fate with a final push for California.
1: Now back to the story.
0: In late October 1846, the Donner Party was tantalizingly close to their destination. Just beyond the Sierra Nevada mountains was the untamed land of California. However, winter was quickly approaching, and if they didn't pass those mountains soon, they ran the risk of being snowed in.
1: The supplies Charles Stanton had brought them from California would last the party a little while longer but George Donner feared they were pushing their luck. He decided they should send another advance party to Sutter's Fort for supplies.
0: Two men, William Foster and William Pike, volunteered to make the journey.
1: But this expedition would never happen. As the two men packed their provisions to scale the mountain range, a pistol Foster was holding accidentally discharged. The bullet struck William Pike in the back and he collapsed to the ground, writhing in agony.
0: The group gathered around him, watching him as he contorted on the ground, groaning. After an excruciating 20 minutes, he died. 14-year-old Mary Murphy would later write, he suffered more than tongue can tell. Foster was racked with guilt. Pike had been his brother-in-law, He fell into a solemn silence for the rest of the journey.
1: Unable to find more volunteers for a supply run or unwilling to spend the time, George Donner insisted they go on with the supplies they had. They moved camp and made their way toward the Truckee River Canyon, hoping they could beat the snow.
0: By the time they arrived at Truckee River Canyon in late October 1846, The Donner party had split into three distinct groups. The lead group with the Breen family, the Kiesbergs and the Eddies. The middle group with Margaret Reed and her children, the Graves family, Charles Stanton, Luis and Salvador, and the third group consisting only of the Donner family trailing far behind.
1: George Donner stayed to the rear of the train so their cattle wouldn't get run down by any of the other wagons. He was also deeply concerned about wagons having difficulty on the upcoming slopes and wanted to make sure he could provide assistance for any that fell behind.
0: As far as George Donner was concerned, their journey was still salvageable. As long as they could pass the Sierras before winter, they would be able to reach their destination. But as the Donners descended into the nearby Dog Valley, another unanticipated disaster struck.
1: As they guided their horses and oxen into the canyon, one of the Donner wagons overturned, trapping two of the children in the wreckage, four-year-old Georgia and three-year-old Eliza. Fortunately, neither was seriously injured, but the accident presented another issue to the Donners. The axle of this wagon had broken and needed repairs.
0: Now, having completely lost sight of the rest of their party, George Donner and his brother Jacob set about fashioning a replacement axle from a nearby pine
1: log. George held the log while Jacob hacked away at it with a chisel.
0: Just as Jacob was putting the finishing touches on it, the chisel slipped, cutting a deep gash across the back of George Donner's hand.
1: As his family washed and dressed his wound, George quipped that he had greater concerns than cuts and bruises. Despite his flippant tone, his concern was growing. They couldn't waste time on such a minor inconvenience when they were so far behind the rest of their party.
0: At that same moment, around five miles southwest, the remainder of the Donner party was pushing to escape the valley.
1: The other 59 members of the party were camped out by Truckee Lake. They had awakened that morning to an inch of snow and panicked, realizing that winter was not far off.
0: Without the leadership of George Donner, the group decided to take a chance and try to summit the Sierra Nevada. They turned to Charles Stanton for guidance, as he was the only one who knew the way. The two Miwoks who accompanied Stanton, Luis and Salvador, also knew the mountains, but they couldn't speak much English.
1: On November 2nd, the party made their way to the far side of the lake and attempted to summit.
0: Though it was still only fall, the rocks were already slick with snow and ice. Iron-rimmed wagon wheels couldn't gain any traction on the rock, and they began to slide backwards on the steep incline.
1: The drivers beat at the oxen mercilessly to force progress, but the wagons could only move forward mere feet at a time. Though Stanton and the Miwoks could scout ahead a good ways up the mountain on foot, the wagons lagged far behind them.
0: By this point, everyone had stepped out of their wagons in an attempt to lighten the load for their exhausted animals. Some men even attempted to push their own wagons, hoping that would be just the encouragement the oxen needed to make real progress. Almost all of the women carried their children, adding to their exhaustion.
1: Stanton returned from scouting ahead to find the party had come to a complete standstill. Dark storm clouds gathered overhead. Some of the men lit a nearby pitch pine on fire, and everyone gathered around it for warmth.
0: Stanton attempted to persuade the family to press on, but night was drawing in fast. The men and women were tired. Instead of setting up camp, Many simply put buffalo skins and blankets on the ground, laying down to sleep by the burning pine.
1: On the morning of November 3rd, Louis Kiesberg awoke to a terrible shock.
0: He stepped out of his wagon to what seemed like an empty plain of white snow, devoid of life. When he cried out in alarm, heads started popping out of the snowbanks having been buried during the night.
1: One by one, the settlers awoke and jumped to their feet, brushing snow from their clothing and shaking their blankets dry. The valley had been transformed from green to white overnight. Winter had finally caught up with them. Concern gave way to panic and the families gathered by the burnt tree to figure out a course of action.
0: They faced a terrible choice, either attempt to summit the icy mountain, which they had already failed to do the day before, or head back to the lake and risk getting trapped in by the snow and cold.
1: In the end, after a heated discussion, they decided to take the latter option. This is unsurprising. The dreadful mountain climb was fresh in their minds from the previous day, and at least a return to the lake could promise shelter and a chance to assess their options and think of a new plan.
0: The 59 men, women, and children guided their wagons back down the mountains.
1: As they made their way back to the lake, snow began to fall, gently at first, but soon increasing in speed and intensity.
0: The settlers quickly realized that neither the tents they had been using nor their covered wagons would be enough protection against the cold. They would need to construct more permanent shelters.
1: Patrick Breen discovered a primitive cabin a mile to the east of the lake, which he claimed for his family. It was a crude structure made of pine saplings with a dirt floor and no roof. This structure had been erected by a young migrant named Moses Schallenberger, who had spent the winter of 1844 in the valley.
0: To make the cabin habitable, the Breen's fashioned a roof out of hides and canvas. The nine Breen's were joined by Patrick Dolan and a Mexican drover named Antonio in the cramped 168-square-foot space.
1: Louis Kiesberg constructed shelter for his own family up against the Breen's cabin.
0: Southwest of the structure, close to the lake, William Eddy and William Foster located a large concave boulder. They hurriedly gathered materials and constructed three walls of a cabin up against it. 16 individuals, including Eddy, Foster, and Levina Murphy's families, all moved into this stone cabin.
1: The final structure in the lake camp was nearly a mile to the east and slightly north of the Breen's cabin. This cabin was built by Franklin Graves and consisted of two adjacent chambers, one for the Graves family and the other for the Reeds. Since James Reeds' departure, Franklin Graves had taken some sense of responsibility for his wife and children.
0: As soon as they could, the encamped travelers dispatched a messenger back up the trail to meet the Donners.
1: The Donner family had reached a stream now called Alder Creek when they heard the news that the rest of their company had failed to cross the Sierras and were now constructing cabins by the lake for shelter.
0: Fearing that a full blizzard was not far off, George and Jacob Donner began working on a log cabin by the creek. This was slow going, as George couldn't use his injured right hand, and Jacob was feeling weak from travel.
1: As the snow piled up around them, they abandoned the unfinished cabin and threw together three canvas tents, one for George Donner's family, one for Jacobs, and a third for their Teamsters.
0: Between the two camps, there were 81 people in total, 59 at the cabins by the lake and 22 by Alder Creek.
1: By this time, the original party of 87 that traveled west from Independence was down to 79. Five had died, one had been banished, and two had gone west for help. Those that remained in the Truckee River Valley were unprepared for winter. If they stayed, they would run out of food in days, and if they tried to climb the Sierras, they would risk both starvation and freezing to death.
0: After walking over 2,000 miles, they were just over 100 miles away from the nearest settlement in California, Sutter's Fort. But as the families huddled together in their makeshift shelters, the beautiful land of California had never felt farther away. Many of their party would never lay eyes on any land beyond the frozen basin they were now trapped within.
1: Thanks for listening to Survival. Next week, winter sets in at Truckee Lake, and certain members of the Donner Party make a desperate bid to escape their wintry trap. For more information on the Donner Party, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride by Daniel James Brown, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Survival in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
0: Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. This episode of Survival is written by Robert Teamstra and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.